This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The tech giants are under threat from governments and each other. But what does it mean for competition in the global economy? We think we're going into a new phase of less collusion, more competition. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and also coming up on today's show the multi-billion dollar industry that can bring down everything from hospitals and banks to utility systems. These brokers advertise prices as high as $2.5 million, in some cases for a way to crack into your iPhone remotely or your Android phone. And how chatty whales could help the study of the seafloor. I'm trying to show that the whale calls may contain more information than we thought previously. But first, this week, controversial Australian legislation which would force big tech firms like Google and Facebook to pay news publishers for their journalism cleared a major parliamentary hurdle. And symbolically, it could pave the way for other countries to press big web platforms to pay for the news they'd link to. Last week, Facebook responded to the original proposed legislation by blocking news content for its users in Australia. After a global backlash, on February 23rd, Facebook reached a deal with the government. At the same time, Google is appeasing lawmakers and is said to be negotiating lucrative content licensing deals with Australian news publishers. And Microsoft, the owner of the Bing search engine, supported the new law and proposed that it could fill the potential gap left by Google. The company even suggested that America should adopt a similar approach to Australia's. But this isn't the only spat between the big five tech giants of late. Apple and Facebook's row over privacy doesn't look like we'll end soon. And the tech giants remain dominant in their respective markets. But will greater competition threaten their power? Various regulations around the world very clearly argue that big tech companies are monopolies or, or quasi-monopolies. Tamsin Booth is The Economist technology and business editor. In 2020, you've got the Department of Justice and state's attorney general in the U.S., launching long-awaited antitrust lawsuit against Google and Facebook. Regulators have got an eye on Amazon in e-commerce. Apple itself hasn't been targeted yet, but it's been sued by another company, Epic Games. And so this narrative of monopoly and occasionally collusion has just become a kind of really cast-iron consensus, I think. So they're fighting. But what do you mean by collusion among the giants? We have to be careful legally here. Google and Facebook would certainly deny any kind of collusion. But 
There's no doubt that it has really gripped people's imagination that there have been these two deals that have recently come to light. So the first one is that Google pays Apple between $8 billion and $12 billion a year for its search engine to be the default search engine on all Apple devices. And so on the iPhone, iPads, etc., it's not Bing, it's not DuckDuckGo, it's always Google. And that's attracted a lot of attention. Google, for its part, says that it's simply buying distribution, just like a breakfast cereal maker would buy distribution on a shelf but other people see it differently. And then there's another deal between Google and Facebook, which is internally apparently called Jedi Blue, that seems more worrying even. So essentially, Facebook was on the verge of supporting a rival ad tech system to Google's. And this one was backed by news publishers, would have challenged Google. And Google then allegedly gave Facebook a sweetheart deal, essentially to preserve the status quo. And one of the worrying things about this deal is that in it, there's a clause that requires the two companies to, quote unquote, cooperate and assist each other if the deal got investigated for antitrust. So obviously that sort of sends up various red flags. So these two deals are just getting a lot of attention at the moment. So what defines the digital economy? Is it competition or is it collusion? Well, we think we're going into a new phase of less collusion, more competition, and really that big techs kind of pass cosy monopolies under fire, and they're under fire from big tech itself. And there's no doubt that for years, technology has been a winner-take-all kind of game. So you had these companies with their dominant positions, whether in e-commerce, search, online advertising, Um, premium smartphones and the rest of it, you had cases of them helping each other. And also in the mid-2010s, efforts at competition among big tech firms kind of failed to get anywhere, really. So you saw Apple had to fend off lots of hardware competition, but didn't really get very far. Amazon's Fire Phone flopped, um, as did Microsoft's Zoom tablet. Lots of examples of that not really working very well. And you also saw, for instance, one example is Microsoft decided to stop fighting Google in search when Satya Nadella, the current CEO, came in. But now we believe that the tech industry is moving more towards real oligopolistic competition. We looked at nine big tech markets that have total gross operating profits last year of $165 billion. And in six out of nine areas, the incumbent tech giant's market share has been flat or falling between 2015 and 2020, while the market share of the next three biggest competitors has risen. Can you explain that with some examples? Because I can see that when it comes to something like cloud services or mobile phone operating systems, but I don't see that with social networking, pure and simple, or search, pure and simple. So this is where it comes to the core businesses, and that's what's really different here. In social media, you can see that Microsoft has got really clear plans to expand. It's already got LinkedIn. Last year, it nearly bought TikTok, and we've just found out that it just recently nearly bought Pinterest. Amazon is definitely having a look at social media again. In search, another completely core area for the tech giants seems highly likely that Microsoft is going to really push Bing much harder, for instance, if the Google-Apple deal gets unwound. 
And you just saw Microsoft saying that it was ready to swoop in in Australia if Google had withdrawn its search engine there over this row over Google having to pay news publishers more money. And Apple itself is expected to get into search in a much bigger way than it ever has. And 2018, it poached Google's head of search. And there are all sorts of signs that it's got some serious ambitions there. So how might the industry evolve in the future? Well, the tech giants are going to compete for control over the next big computing platform, you know, whether that be autonomous cars, VR headsets, smart speakers, connected home devices. They will each want to be the company that creates the WeChat of the West, a kind of super app that collects a whole load of useful functionality in one place. Autonomous cars, you can already see that Google has Waymo. There seems highly likely to be an Apple autonomous vehicle. You saw the talks with South Korea's Hyundai recently that didn't go anywhere, but it's certainly an indication of intent. And of course, the giants are investing massively in R&D for all of these areas. And the future is where they will compete hardest with each other. From a business and a consumer perspective, what does competition mean? We could already see that it means lower profit margins to the tech giants. So Facebook, for instance, gone from 50% profit margin in 2017 to less than 40% now. Some products are offered ostensibly for free. So you can see consumer benefit often in terms of innovation instead of price. It's interesting to look at search, I think. So Apple and Bing, if Apple and Microsoft both get really much more deeply into search, I think they're quite likely to protect consumer privacy, perhaps more than Google does, and share the gains and the wealth with other businesses. And that's simply because Apple and Microsoft are making their real money from hardware in the case of Apple and software in the case of Microsoft. So overall, as long as they are really slugging it out, that is good for everyone. And it's definitely better than the sort of half-hearted competition that you saw in the early to late 2010s. That's fascinating. Tamsin Booth, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ken. To read Tamsin's analysis on big tech competition in this week's issue, subscribe to The Economist. Also in this week's science section, the age-old rivalry between killer whales and sharks. Don't miss out. For a special introductory subscription offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. And don't forget to tell him Ken Sancha. Next, the modern world is dependent on software for everything from your smartphone to air traffic control systems. If we ever go on holiday again, Technology might make life easier in numerous ways, but when there's a vulnerability in one of these programs, whole systems can come crashing down. Earlier in February, a cyber attack almost led to the poisoning of the water supply in Oldsmar, Florida. Someone remotely accessed the computer system. The hacker changed the sodium hydroxide from about 100 parts per million to 11,100 parts per million. Hacks that take advantage of previously unknown vulnerabilities, called zero-day exploits, are a particularly difficult problem. Malicious software paralyzed 16 hospital computer systems across England. Similar attacks had been reported on business targets across Europe, including Spain's telephone system. Japan, Turkey, and the Philippines were also... If a hacker finds a novel exploit, they can do serious damage or sell it to those who will. 
With a zero-day exploit, a really good one, or a string of them put together, I could hack into your iPhone, I could capture your text messages, your phone calls, your contacts, turn your microphone on and capture your recording, or turn on your video camera and capture whatever is around you. And that has become the blood diamond of the security trade. Nicole Prolroth has been investigating zero-day hackers and is the author of a new book, This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends. The Economist defense editor, Shashank Joshi, has been talking to her for Babbage. There are zero-day brokers all over the world that will buy these zero days from hackers, either just the bug itself, but usually it's the full zero-day exploit, into things like your iPhone and Microsoft Windows. And these brokers advertise prices as high as $2.5 million in some cases for a way to crack into your iPhone remotely or your Android phone. Other governments, such as the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, have offered as much as $3 million for those same capabilities. And what these brokers buy is not just the code, but also these hackers' silence. If they are selling these zero-day exploits to a broker, which in turn passes it to a government, it necessitates that the hacker and the broker and the government don't tell companies like Apple or Microsoft that there's a bug in their systems. Because once that bug gets patched and we all run our software updates, governments lose the capability to spy on that software or those devices. Nicole, people have a vague sense of how much damage cyber attacks can do. You saw the aftermath of a big one in Ukraine and you describe it in the book. What was it like? Well, I went to Ukraine two years after Russia had used a cyber attack to essentially decimate not just Ukrainian government systems, but any system that was tied into a Ukraine employee working overseas. So that attack actually boomeranged back on Pfizer, on FedEx here in the United States, on Merck. But the year I went to Ukraine, 2019, it had been two years since that attack had played out. And the postal service was still not back up to speed. Its railway was still trying to clean up its systems. And everywhere I went, people were very candid about the fact that the week of the attack, they could not pull money out of ATMs or pay for gas at gas stations. It really paralyzed the country, and it ended up being the most destructive cyber attack we have seen in modern history. Lots of the people involved in this trade you describe are former spies who have worked for Western intelligence agencies, America's National Security Agency. Do they have a sense of restraint in whom they sell to or who they work for in this trade? Some do. When I was able to track down one of the original zero-day brokers here in the United States, he was buying these zero-days from hackers all over the world. Hackers in Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, Israel produced some of the best zero-days. He would buy these, he would exploit them, and then he would sell them primarily to intelligence agencies here in the United States, but also some law enforcement agencies But governments such as in Iran and China, they are actively trying to buy zero days from hackers all over the world. In China, just in the past few years, they've restricted their own hackers from even attending 
international hacking conferences and conventions where Chinese hackers used to dominate these contests at these conferences for getting into your Mac or your iPhone. Now China has basically said, we won't allow you to travel to these conferences. We want to keep this knowledge and these zero-day exploits in-house. So the market has really expanded. Now, in terms of regulation or restraint, there aren't many at all, because really in this market, governments are not regulators, they are the customers. You're very critical of America on a number of counts. You write that the US effectively spawned and sponsored the zero-day market, that it inflated and, and really created this market in the first place. I think that is a completely fair criticism. I think the United States is guilty of basically showing the world uh, the value of these tools because of the attack the United States and the Israelis pulled off in Iran starting in 2007 when they used zero-day exploits to effectively dismantle Iran's uranium stockpiles. And we effectively destroyed a thousand of Iran's uranium centrifuges. Now, that attack was brilliant. We set Iran's nuclear ambitions back years. It arguably helped get Tehran to the negotiating table when it came time to negotiate the Iran nuclear deal. And it kept Israeli jets on the ground because at that time, Israel was threatening to bomb Natanz. And if the United States helped enable or facilitate that attack, we would be dragged into a third war in the Middle East that would likely turn into World War III. The problem was that in 2010, that code leaked out. And every government for the first time saw the value of a zero-day exploit for its battlefield preparations. Over the next two years, we saw Iran, the target of that attack, catch up in ways we never anticipated them to do so quickly. It was only two years later that they decimated data at Saudi Aramco, the world's largest oil company, and replacing it with an image of a burning American flag. And they've only gotten more sophisticated in time. Now, it is definitely a fair criticism to say that eventually Iran would acquire these capabilities and use them back on us. But I think it is also fair to say the United States was a big catalyst for these programs abroad and in demonstrating what could be done. And these days, we really have zero control over this market. I went down to Buenos Aires and I met with hackers who specialize in developing zero-day exploits. And I asked them, will you only sell these tools to, quote, good Western governments? And the person I was speaking with that day just laughed in my face and he said, good Western governments, Nicole. The last time I checked, the government that bombed another country into oblivion wasn't Iran or China. It was the United States. We'll sell to whoever brings us the biggest bag of cash. Nicole, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Our thanks to Shashank Joshi and Nicole Perlroth. I'm Alok Jha, host of The Jab, a new podcast from The Economist. Each week we'll unlock the science, data and politics behind the most ambitious inoculation programme the world has ever seen. As the world enters a race between injections and COVID-19 infections, we speak with journalists from The Economist all around the world, plus expert guests. That's The Jab. Join me today and start listening. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business... 
whether it's a local operation or a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Fin whales are one of the kinds of whales in the ocean. They have quite unique vocalizations. My name is Václav Kuna. I'm a seismologist and I study earthquakes primarily. While analyzing recordings of seismic waves at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, Dr. Kuna kept hearing strange noises. Different kinds of whales have different kinds of vocalizations, and the fin whales, they are calling these quite low frequency at about 20 hertz. The vocalizations that we heard, those were 10 times sped up. These sequences of those calls last for hours, and we call them songs. At the bottom of the ocean, with highly sensitive instruments, you always pick up a lot of sounds. But maybe those noises could be harnessed to become signal. I've never really studied any sounds that would be coming from the ocean. In a way, when I found out that those were fin whale calls, I realized that there might be something into it because these are kind of ideal signals for subsurface imaging. When did you realize you could turn to the whales to help you research the seafloor? There wasn't any kind of master plan behind this. I just observed those uh, recordings at our stations. When I found out that those were actually fin whales, I had a look at them from a perspective of seismology because people usually study fin whale calls and any other whale vocalizations from the perspective of biology and they are trying to find out something about the mammals themselves. The basic idea is that we have a source of the call, the whale calls, and then the most energetic sound, let's say, is traveling from the whale directly to the station that is sitting on the ocean bottom somewhere. And it's the same thing as if you are talking to a colleague in, in the office. The most energetic sound, your voice, is traveling straight from you to your colleague. But also there are all kinds of echoes. For example, if we take that office analogy, the wave travels to a wall and bounces off and travels to your colleague. And in a similar manner, the signals from the whale, they also travel through the water column. They bounce off the ocean bottom. So those echoes arrive later at stations. What I came up with in the paper was that those echoes are not only existing in the ocean, in the water, but there are also some echoes from the subsurface, meaning that when the call is produced by the whale, part of that energy gets transmitted into the ground and it travels through the shallow oceanic crust and bounces off layers in there. And some of that energy bounces back and reaches the ocean bottom seismic station, which based on the travel time, on the, on the time of the arrival of this echo or reflection, as we call it, we can somewhat calculate how it looks like beneath the ground. Now, why was whale song good for that? What made it unique compared to, say, something else? Because in theory, if your instrumentation is so sensitive, you could use a whole variety of other noises in the water. You are right. I think that it potentially is possible to use other uh, noises or other signals in the water. But the fin whale calls particularly, they are very appropriate for this kind of study because they are very high energetic. The amount of energy that goes into that call is comparable to 
engines of large ships. So those are very, very loud calls. And also the frequency content, which is at about 20 hertz, it doesn't attenuate as fast as, let's say, signal that would be 10 times or 100 times higher frequency. So these signals at about 20 hertz, they can actually go quite deep. In our case, we were able to observe those reflections from as deep as two and a half kilometers inside of the oceanic crust. So I guess everyone now wants to know, what did you find out? What did you learn? This study was proof of the concept that this may work, that this information about the shallow oceanic crust is actually contained in the whale calls. In a way, we can apply this knowledge in seismology or geology or climatology can use this knowledge too. But maybe more importantly, I'm trying to show that the whale calls or other mammal calls in the ocean may contain more information than we thought previously, because it's always like every acoustical signal somehow contains information both about the source itself, but also about the environment where it travels. And I'm showing that we can extract this information in the case of whale calls and the subsurface information, but there might be more. So I'm kind of hoping that people will test this out and they will have different ideas and and maybe even do something else with the whale calls. What do you mean that we can actually use this information for a variety of scientific research? The thing is that for a variety of scientific fields, knowing the structure of the Earth is very important. So, for example, for us in seismology, we are always deploying these networks of seismic stations, but we don't really know exactly what is the shallow structure underneath the station. But the shallow structure underneath the station is important when we are measuring earthquakes and trying to locate earthquakes. We always get these delays or the the waves are either a little bit delayed or a little bit faster, depending on the shallow structure underneath the station. And we didn't really have that many ways, uh, ways to constrain that. And now we can actually use this information from the whale calls to constrain the shallow structure underneath the station and apply some corrections. And in a way, we can improve quality of earthquake locations. But that's only one example from seismology. But then there is geology and, for example, climatology cares about how deep the sediments are at some particular spots. And because it has implications for calculations of storing carbon and stuff like that, there is a range of disciplines that may use this knowledge. Now, you have been listening to a lot of whale song for a long time. What are they saying? <laughs> Just gossiping. That's great. Just like us. Vaclav Kuda, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And finally, on February 18th, NASA's Perseverance rover successfully landed on Mars. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. This week, the rover used its microphone to collect the first audio recording of the Red Planet. For a fuller appreciation of the surface of Mars, take an extraterrestrial hike with Oliver Morton, the Economist's briefings editor, who gives us a guided tour. I love this time of day here on Mars. I love the fact that a very faint set of colours starts showing up in the sky that's washed out during the day. I like that sometimes, if you're lucky, you can see Earth as the evening star hanging up there above the setting sun, above where the sun has set. 
For more, check out Babbage from December 2020. The episode is called Baby, It's Cold Outside. You can find it on your podcast app. And that's all for this week's episode. Thank you for listening to Babbage. And before you jet off to Mars, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference to help others discover the podcast and possibly enjoy it. This episode was produced by Jason Hoskin, Amika Shortino-Nolan, William Warren, and a nameless whale. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.